In April 2017, Sister Linda K. Burton gave a talk titled, Certain Women. Now, I have come to love this talk, and I'm going to share one of my favorite passages from this talk. Here's what she says, quote, The New Testament includes accounts of certain women, named and unnamed, who exercised faith in Jesus Christ and in His Atonement, learned and lived His teachings, and testified of His ministry, miracles, and majesty. These women became exemplary disciples and important witnesses in the work of salvation, unquote. You guys, today we get to talk about these certain women, specifically the certain women mentioned in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, and what it was like to be a woman at the time of Christ. Welcome to the second episode of Unnamed Women of the New Testament, a special bonus series from the Sunday on Monday podcast brought to you by LDS Living and Desert Bookshelf Plus. The Sunday on Monday podcast is a come follow me podcast, and it's where we take the come follow me lesson for the week and we really dig into the scriptures together. So if you want to know more information about that podcast, click on the link in our description or you can go to ldsliving.com slash Sunday on Monday and sign up for a free 30 day trial of Desert Bookshelf Plus. That's how you access the podcast, as well as the complete Desert Book Library. So it's totally awesome. I love it. Okay, now here's my favorite thing about this podcast series. It's my guest. It is Camille Frank Olson. Hi, friend. Hello. Oh, I love this woman, you guys. You've heard me gush about her, especially last year with Old Testament. We used her book and I love to frequent her writings and use them in the lot that we study with. And she has paid the price to know all things about women in scripture. So if you have her books, Women of the Old Testament, Women of the New Testament, you know how great they are. And today we get to study these certain women. How are you feeling about this? I'm very excited. This is wonderful. Oh, tell me, I because I had this thought, give me one sentence that sums up your feelings for these specific certain women in Luke chapter 8. They aren't what we might expect. Oh. They show tremendous independence in their freedom to move mm-hmm. and go, come and go as they choose and also have um, resources that they seem free to be able to dispense of as they choose. And so then you you put that together with that idea of being certain as Sister Burton so beautifully described and the idea of not just various women or these Mm -hmm. identifiable women, but women who are certain of their testimony of Jesus Christ and what they do with their resources and how they come together as a group of women. That's more than one sentence, but you know, we'll allow it. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I think of these two verses in Luke chapter eight, we're going to read verses one through three, but they often just kind of go overlooked. Like you read them and you're like, oh, that's nice. These women were with Jesus. But there is a lot of information packed in these verses, and I can't wait to unpack these verses with you. And so we're going to dive into these words, and we're going to talk about the word certain in just a minute. So let's do this first. Let's just read the three verses so that we know what we're dealing with and everybody can hear them who's listening. Camille, will you read Luke chapter eight, verses one through three? Yes. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, 
and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Thank you. So if you have your scriptures, you're going to want to mark in verse two, certain women, but they are all named. So the question is, well, wait a minute, who are the unnamed women in this verse? So we're going to have you mark something in verse three, circle, highlight, underline, however you want to mark this. There are two words that are so important to these unnamed women. The two words are many others. And here's why those are important. The actual Greek translation of these two words is translated in feminine form, which means there were more women than the ones just listed. And I thought that was super exciting to find out. And Camille, you wrote about that in your book. Why was that important to write? Well, if you're, if you're reading in English, you see the, the plural form, mm-hmm. others, and, and you, of course, that's what you use for men and women. It's right. only when you can look at these languages that have feminine and masculine endings that when you see it all feminine, that means there were no men involved. There were only talking women. And so that starts telling you there are more women up in Galilee who are involved with Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. Um, we don't know how many, but but this is this is a lovely society of women who are functioning together here. A lovely society of women functioning together. That's powerful. Just hearing those words like that. I think of us as women working together and in a society and doing powerful, amazing things like these women did. So what I want us to do is, here's the thing that is the most shocking for all of us. And it was shocking for me when I learned this is what it was like to be a woman at this time. And this is so fascinating. So before we can even talk about these women, what we want to know is what are they up against? What is life like for a woman at the time of Christ? So let's go over a couple of things and just talk to our listeners. Camille, tell us what we know. What was it like to be a woman? Well, I'd even say to begin this, the records that we have are laws or men talking about kind of what they perceive society to be or the, the way it should be. It would be interesting to see how it actually played out. And the, oh, the yeah. verses kind of give you a hint that there is probably a lot more going on. But yeah, you you look at the the legal system and the way men talked about a lot of men that are writing or talking about women that we have restored for us today. Um, they didn't have a voice in legal matters. Mm-mm. They um the Jewish law, the rabbis would teach that men could initiate a divorce um, and women's voices were heard if they concurred, but a woman could not initiate a divorce. And if a woman left her husband and married someone else, she was claimed to be an adulteress. Mm-hmm. But a man could do that just for whatever reasons and marry someone else. Um, if a woman does not have a husband or a father or a son, she's pretty much um, destitute. There weren't opportunities as in a typical sense without having any other kind of resource that she could go get training or um, livelihood. And so you would see, I think there's be a reason why you would see women begging um, very often. 
um, stealing. And then I think if we went back and looked at prostitutes, you'd be interested. I think it'd be interesting to see what led them to that. When Jesus said the publicans and the harlots will get to heaven before you do speaking to the chief Jewish leaders, I think it tells you that a lot of these that were considered in a sinful situation maybe had not a whole lot of other recourse, and yet their hearts could still be very good. Oh, that's beautiful. In fact, everything you just said, we kind of, for me, reframed the woman taken in adultery too. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. hmm, maybe, because people mm-hmm. always say, well, where was the man? And mm-hmm. now you kind of go, oh, there wouldn't have needed to be a man with her there because he wasn't committing adultery. In his oh, mind. That's right. right. Like, that's interesting. That's right. Huh. What about schooling for women at this time? Um, you know, there just isn't much. I mean, there wasn't schooling even for men. It, it, that would, you would have to be in a more well-to-do home to get really major, major schooling. Men would have to have some for a trade. Um, I, I just, literacy, it's hard to to pinpoint, but it just seems like it was a much more of an oral society mm. where people trusted what was transmitted orally more than even written. And I think they probably were a lot better at oral transmission and being more accurate. But there were very few occupations where you needed to be literate, like scribes, for example. Mm-hmm. So, so there wouldn't be as much of that, but definitely it would seem like women would be the least likely to have received any kind of education and whatever it would be, would be from her mother probably at home. Wow. I was interested to learn that prior to marriage, a woman would basically answer to her father. And then after marriage, she would answer to her husband. Like she really, there was no freedom for her to speak or have a voice of her own. Um, That's just how you're raised from father to husband. Mm -hmm. And, her opinions would not have really mattered or been taken seriously. I thought that was interesting. And this this is the one that really shocked me. When I began studying Hebrew, I was given a Hebrew prayer book. And the first century man and today says a very specific prayer every single morning. And this is the wording of his prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Mm -hmm. And of the, you know, the three worst things you could be, a woman was the worst. Like the, that's how I read it. Like the lowest of all, Mm -hmm. just, I'm grateful that I'm not a woman. And so that really just kind of took the breath out of me a little bit like, oh, wow. Women really didn't have. Mm -hmm. They were second class in society. Great way to put it. Second class citizens. They mm-hmm. couldn't own land. I mean, you talk about they didn't have jobs. They couldn't even own land or anything. And actually, traditionally, the women shouldn't have had any resources available to them if they would have been among the poorer class. And yet we have this striking verse that tells us something about them in verse three. So let's go back into this scripture because I want us to talk about how Christ treated women and how that's starkly different than the way they were treated. We have the best quote ever, which is from Jesus the Christ. James E. Talmadge wrote, the world's greatest champion of woman and womanhood is Jesus Christ. Now, listen, I love that, Camille, because when Jesus the Christ was written back in 1915, the viewpoint of men or James E. Talmadge probably wouldn't have been female favorable, 
But James E. Talmadge's viewpoint is, and I really appreciate this. I mean, women didn't even have the right to vote yet. And here he writes this in favor of women, how much Jesus loved women. That was really cool experience for me as I'm reading it this year. And so he says that about how Christ just loved women. So talk to me about how Christ treated women and your thoughts. Well, you know, there's a reason why I think we as women love reading the four gospels and reading about Christ and his interaction with women because we feel like we're seen and heard and that we have the capacity to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I could just answer. I grew up in Tremont, Utah, Mm. where um, it's the first ward in Tremont, but it, it, it is behind the podium, the whole back, or I guess it'd be the front of the chapel, behind the speaker, the entire width of that room is a mural of Jesus talking with the woman at the well. Are you serious? It's the same mural that you'll find in the in the Alberta temple, or mural. They did it actually, I think, as, as a relief. That was the first one. Um, it's been from a chapel in central Utah. It, when the chapel was um, taken down, they saved the mural and put it in the Provo temple just behind the recommend desk. It's the same one that we have. So I grew up going to church and watching Jesus talk to a woman every week at, at oh church. Gosh. And it had a profound impact on me. Yeah. Um, I just thought Jesus values women and he thinks we're smart enough to learn and, and that he cares about us. And I think that feeling carries through in the scripture so much. We talked earlier about the woman taken in adultery. I just think that must have been the most astounding thing for her to recognize that Jesus was giving her attention and talking directly to her mm-hmm. and and not just seeing her as an object or of no value at all. And the reason why she's able to change the way she does it's because she's been given hope. And and that's it. I As you watch this, you don't see a differentiation between his male and his female disciples. They're all kind of together um, traveling around and hearing him. And we don't see the real specific details. But you can, like in this passage in Luke 8, 1 through 3, you get this idea that the women are not just tagging along kind of being wannabes but they are they have contributions to me to make and they are appreciated and they're included as equals in this in this group of disciples and Jesus sets that environment so that they can be i think it's just really it's just so natural it feels like and and so encouraging that everyone can be their best and give whatever God-given gifts they have been given that strengthen the whole. He brings that out in each one of them. Wow. You know, Camille, when you just said they were included as equals, I wrote that in my scriptures, and I wrote it next to the word and at the beginning of verse 2, because verse 1 tells us that the Savior went back and forth preaching good tidings of the kingdom of God. It says, and the 12 were with him 
and certain women. Like they were, and the writer, Luke is including them as equals because he says, and certain women. And you know what? I'm going to tell you their names. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you everyone's names. So we'll go ahead and write many others in the female form. So you know, there were more women there. But that word certain is pretty cool when it says they were included as equals because we have the 12. And in Sister Burton's talk, here's how she defined the word certain. So we have to include this. She says, I have read and passed over the seemingly unremarkable expression certain women numerous times before. But recently, as I pondered more carefully, those words seem to jump off the page. Consider these synonyms of one meaning of the word certain as connected to faithful certain women. And then she gives these words, convinced, positive, confident, firm, definite, assured, and dependable. Mm, those oh, are good. Right? Mm-hmm. Certain women. So yeah. let's. I want to talk about these certain women. Let's dive into some of their names and talk about what these women did and the contribution that they made to the Savior's ministry. Okay, so we have, go ahead and circle these in your scriptures if you're listening and have them. You want to mark Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and we've already done many others. Okay, we're going to skip Mary for just a second because I'm going to turn that whole time over to Camille. I'm going to just tell us quickly, Joanna and Susanna. So we have Susanna and nothing more is known about her. Just her name right there. There is some supposition is that she could be maybe Salome. We're not really sure if her name's translated in different ways, but we don't really have anything else about her. That's what we know. Then we have Joanna, and there are several awesome scripture references for her um, that she was there at the time of the Savior's crucifixion. And then she was also at the tomb, and she would have been part of the group of women that ran to tell the apostles that the Savior's body wasn't there. So she played a very important role in the the passion verses about the Savior, his his last weekend and after. And so that's what we know about Joanna. Is there anything else you want to add about either one of those women? Well, and maybe even tying it in with the many others. Um we know a lot of stories of a lot of women in of Galilee who were healed by the Savior that we learn about, for example, right there in Luke chapter seven and eight, but we don't have their names. We have it's in in the passion narratives, it talks about the women of Galilee. And like you've mentioned, there's certain names that come up, but we don't know how to connect them to any of the specific stories that were told like the woman that had the issue of blood that that touched the hem of the Savior's garment. There's Jairus' wife. There's his daughter. There's the widow of Nain. There's um, the woman who loved much, um, who had been a sinner, but was a sinner no longer. Um, I mean, it would be interesting. Is Susanna one of those? Is Joanna one of those? I mean, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, yes, um, named Chusa. We don't know anything about that. We don't know if Chusa was a believer or not. We don't know what he was doing with Herod. Does that mean he was more wealthy and did she get wealth from him? Or does he marry her because she's from a more wealthy? I mean, you know, you don't know if we've got different right. classes of women involved here. That doesn't seem to be the important thing, except that there are men as well as many women who are contributing and building the kingdom um, and learning just exponentially as the Savior is traveling around and teaching and are going to be 
foundational for creating the church and mm-hmm. and establishing the missions that'll take the gospel throughout the world. So Okay, well I just have to tell you this because in my mind I'm imagining this scenario. My friends and I always kind of joke about when when Jesus comes and everything's said and done and we're up with God again, we always say there will be this big seminary in heaven, a class where you can just ask God anything you want and get answers. And I just have this vision of you and me fighting for a front row seat so yeah. we can start saying, okay, let's put this together. And I'm just imagining this huge diagram on the board yeah. and all the women and what their names were and really where they fit into the story. Because now I want to know, I've never considered that. What if the woman with the issue of blood was Susanna or... Yeah. Yeah. She was the woman in adultery. Oh yeah. my gosh. That gives so much power. The woman in adultery was in Jerusalem, but you know, there's going to be stories like that. Yes. Yeah. It's so cool. Okay. That's awesome. I love how you just framed that. So, okay. So those are those two women. And now, oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Okay. Hit it, Camille. Tell us about your woman, Mary. I just think Mary Magdalene, if you know very little about the life of Jesus and his ministry, you know, you've heard the name Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. Her name appears 12 times in the four Gospels in the oh, New wow. Testament. And, and in every case, she's either all alone. She's the only woman, you know, that is being spoken of. Or her name is first in the list, like the one we just read here in Luke 8, 2 and 3. The only exception is in John nineteen twenty five. When they're at the cross, and her name is um, preceded by Mary, the mother of Jesus, the the mother of Jesus. So that's the one time Mary Magdalene is second. Mm. I didn't know. But but I think so. From that, we know without knowing much more about her that she was a prominent disciple of Jesus Christ and Mm. highly regarded. And whoever's writing the story of Jesus. They not only know about her, but they know her name and they include her name. Yeah. Um, Mary Magdalene, we think it is like Mary from Magdala, from the town mm-hmm. on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Magdala means salted fish and Strabo, a first century geographer, wrote about a salted fish industry in Magdala, which would not only you know, be a, a boon because with just fish and, and how you could, fishermen would sell the fish, but what if you, by salting them, you can preserve it. And in times um, when fishing is not good or when you're traveling, the fact that you could have like a food reserve mm-hmm. would have been exceptionally an important industry. So, we know in some ways these women had resources. It says, and ministered unto them, unto him of their substance. They have substance that is needed by Jesus and the rest of the entourage. Yeah. And they provide that. And so you wonder, you know, again, we don't really know, but what does Mary Magdalene do um, in rural areas? Very often women had to work. I mean, if it's with for the family, there was not the luxury to say, oh, you're a girl. We need to save you for marriage or we need to save you being nice and pretty at home. Um, they worked, you know, for the family. Yeah. They were part of the business. And, and you don't know if she's got a husband and they have this business together 
or if she, her father does, or if she's a widow or if she's never married, we, we just don't know, but no. she has access to substance and the latitude to act on that. Yeah. And, and she does. And it, she seems to be like Joanna and Susanna and the others, very generous with what they have to support Jesus and their day-to-day operations. If it's food, if it's access to a place to stay, if, you know, traveling supplies, whatever it is, um, she is doing that. And, and, and so this is the only glimpse we get of her. Both Mark and Luke kind of mention her here, as well as the fact that out of her went that were cast seven devils. Right. Tell us about that. That. And the significance of that number and everything. Everything that you could possibly imagine has probably been deduced from that. Now, mm-hmm. I think initially the, the first um, kind of apocryphal works that came out made Mary Magdalene higher than the apostles. She was called the apostle to the apostles by some because she's the one charged by the resurrected Christ to go tell them that he really is risen. And then it seems like initially it was a competition between who's greater, Mary Magdalene or Peter. And right. you you see them in their little councils going back and <laughs> forth and the different dis- disciples voting. And and you go, what? This is not helpful for anyone. <laughs> at, about, at about fourth century, um, it kind of changes. And then it's kind of like, oh, no, she, these women are getting too important. I don't know what people are thinking. Yeah. And it's at that point, they start making this other adjustment. And where it comes, again, Luke 8, verse 1, and it came to pass afterward. You have to ask, what is after what? What's the antecedent of that? Mm. And what was connected at the end of chapter 7 is the story of this woman we read about her whose name we do not know, Luke 7, 36 and 37. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. This is up in Galilee. Mm-hmm. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And you remember, she starts crying and she's washing her the savior's feet with her tears and, and, and um, Simon, the Pharisees say is thinking if this man really were a prophet, he would knew what, know what manner of woman she is because she is a sinner. What I love about the Greek in that verse, Luke 7, 37, a woman who was a sinner, the tense of that verb allows you to say, an action that took place in the past, but has been completed Yeah. so that she was, she had been a sinner, but she's not one any longer, which exactly fits with this story mm-hmm. because she's a change. She's changed. She loves Jesus. But when Jesus blesses her, he tells Simon, her sins, which are many are forgiven. Yeah. And then he turns to her and says, Thy sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Well, I think it's part of the time, but it lasted for centuries. People think, what did a woman do to sin? And the only creative thing they ever came up with was she was a prostitute. (laughs) 
So, <laughs> so one, you make a major jump there that this woman is a prostitute in Luke 7. And then afterward, chapter 8, verse 1, he comes and there's these women. And Mary Magdalene is named after whom was, was cast out seven devils. Oh, she must be that woman in chapter right. 7. Mary Magdalene must have been a prostitute then. And Jesus forgives her and he helps her by casting out these evil spirits, which is an indication of her sin. Whoa, did you right. get how many lists of, uh-huh. of if, 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 oh. and, and so for centuries, Mary Magdalene was cast as the sinner of all sinners. And Jesus heals her, and now she becomes a great disciple. Well, can I just say, if if she were, if that were the case about Mary Magdalene, so be it. That's the power of the atonement. <laughs> right. <laughs> she can do it. But I take offense when people make people into sinners in ways that we have no record to show. Right. And we see many others that the Savior cast out evil spirits from. And there's nowhere that it connects it with sin. Well, we still do it today. Who are we I kidding? Know. We I love know. to do that. Well, what did they do wrong? Protection, right? Uh huh. Oh, they, how did they parent that child? They probably didn't have enough family home evenings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, and so perhaps to bring Mary Magdalene down a notch from being um, a competitor with Peter or maybe the apostle to the apostles, we bring her all the way down to say she was sinner of all sinners. And there's just nothing in the text that gives us. We don't know. Perhaps that phrase tells us a lot more about Jesus Christ and his power than it does about Mary Magdalene's overall health. Mm. Yeah, tell us about that. Because it says, of whom went out seven devils. And I like the way you wrote about this. It could be literally seven devils went out of her. Or like you said, it could actually, the number could be specific in proving Christ's power. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, the number seven is related to the the idea of completeness or perfection. And like seven days in a week, and then the earth is complete. And and this might be just saying she is she is made whatever her ailments. And notice it isn't just Mary Magdalene. Let's get that wording again. So when he said Luke eight, verse two, certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Notice we've got plural there. Right. Mary Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa and Susanna, and many others. Doesn't that say the many, all of these women had some kind of infirmity, anything, something yep. that has been healed. And, you know, which had been healed of evil spirits specifically. So whatever that means, and we do not use that terminology today, very <laughs> rarely. It's hard to say if we know exactly what they understood that to mean at that particular time. But what we can conclude, I would say, from what's here is whatever situation these women were in before they knew Jesus, after they came to know him and follow him and be blessed and touched and healed by him, their lives are immensely greater. 
and better. They are whole. Um, they are healed physically and spiritually, and yeah. they never, ever forget it. Which just adds depth and weight to them being certain. Mm-hmm. I mean, that word, again, in the definition that we got from Sister Burton, add to the depth of that word certain because of that experience. So excellent. Thank you, Camille. And so you taught us beautifully that they gave of their substance. And I like how you taught us that that means they had to have, what did that look like? And it could have been so many different things, but there's a word in verse three, not only did they give of their substance, but they ministered unto him. And you're doing air quotes with the word ministered because that word is so important to us. So tell us, because I think this is really neat, especially in the Greek translation, what this word means. So tell us about this word. Well, because I love it because it, it's translated different ways. Diakonos is is um, the noun form of it, and it, in in Greek, just generally, it in the verb form, it is to serve. It is like to wait tables. in In the Greek culture, it was nothing to brag about. You did not boast that you were a diakonos. <laughs> so they were the bottom of the food chain. But Jesus turned this on its head mm-hmm. and he said, he that is greatest among you, let him be your diakonos, wow. your servant. And, and, and it, it, it is translated as servant. Let me compare two verses. Can I do this? Yes. Compare two verses, one of a woman, one of a man that is almost verbatim. And the translators translated the word diakonos differently, whether it was a man or a woman. So here's here's the the woman first. Romans chapter 16. This is Phoebe, who probably delivered the letter from Cancria or Corinth to Rome. Um, Verse 1. I command unto you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cancria. Diakonos, it's translated servant. And then the next part, that ye receive her in the Lord. You people in Rome, when she comes, receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a sucker or a benefactress mm. of many and of myself also. So here he is. I'm committing to you this sister in the gospel who is a diakonos and who does has been a patroness or a benefactress for the church. Um, she's going to help you out when she comes. Okay, now come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. Notice the wording. It says almost the same thing about Timothy. And send Timotheus, or Timothy, our brother, parallel, our sister to Phoebe, and minister of God. Same word, diakonos. Wow. And our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So other places, it's called ministering or a minister, but the man is called a minister. The woman is called a servant, but it's the same word. Yes. Just to add to the complexity of this word, when you get to 
First Timothy, and he's writing to Timothy about calling bishops and what are the attributes or the characteristics of a bishop. He also talks about other servants in the church, diakonoses, if I can say it that way, Mm -hmm. but they translate it deacons. Yes. And so you can hear deacon in diakonos. And so over time, the word has come to mean a priesthood office. So that has led someone to say that ministering and diakonosing um, requires priesthood authority. And so Phoebe must have been ordained to the priesthood because she was a female diakonos, which is all missing the whole point (laughs) that Christ is actually telling us that he was greatest. Let him serve. Let him minister. Yes. And so this, that since we have been called to be ministering brothers and ministering sisters, I think this term has so much more meaning. And, and here these women in Luke 8, 2 and 3 minister to him of their substance. This is, they are doing what in Christ's mind is truly the greatest characteristic and attributes of his disciples yeah. to minister to serve, to lose yourself in, in seeking to help the needs of those around us. And he's been the recipient of their ministry um, in, in yeah. what they have it by way of substance and, and how they deliver that and give that to him. Does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely does. Well, and, and to add more depth to your word then, more... I don't know. I, I think this is kind of cool when we learned that this same verb, diakonos, it's used to describe what the angels did after Jesus was tempted. Yes. In Matthew chapter four, verse 11, they diakonosed to mm-hmm. the Savior. Mm-hmm. And so now when I consider that and I go back to this ministering unto him, it reframes the way I minister. Am I ministering in an angelic, holy way? Or am I just trying to check my, I mean, back when we were, you know, when we were visiting teachers, you just check the box. Like I checked in, we're good, but I love this movement of ministering and what that really looks like. And it's so different for so many people. And, you know, my, my own personal example is when I was assigned to a minister, a woman who I actually asked if I could minister to, because she was a woman who didn't have a lot of friends in the ward, but I had become her friend. The only thing she needed one time was a ride to court for a hearing for her son to get parental rights back. I can do that. I can drive you to court and be a witness. And uh, that reframed ministering for me. She didn't want me to come teach her a lesson. She didn't want me to bring her brownies. She just needed that. And so I I like it when I learned that the verb diakonos in Matthew 4.11 is what angels did to Jesus after he was tempted. So we can diakonos, right? Men and women alike with the same authority, the same passion. So I love the way you taught us about that. So thank you. Oh, good stuff. Mm-hmm. So good. Okay. So we have these verses, one through here. I mean, everyone listening, you you totally get now how it is packed with so much. And we got to unpack all of these awesome words. So here's my final last question that I have for Camille. What do you think these women would say to us today as women of the church? Yeah, I I think they would be so thrilled to see women in such numbers 
who were involved in this society that was all about bringing relief and and hoping to minister i think they would be um i'd hope they would be inspired by so many that have embraced that as the truly the greatest calling that we could possibly have and that they might even see a bridge between what they started back during the early ministry of Jesus Christ yeah and how we might have been inspired by them i think they would just be thrilled to know that we would even know about them and hope that something they did would inspire us to be better ministers today because they knew Jesus Christ as he walked on the earth and he they would say to us whether whenever you feed the hungry and clothe the naked um you do it unto him and that we are about the very same business and that it is the most important work we could do yeah thank you because as you were talking i was thinking they would also say even the most infirm of all of us mm-hmm. can serve the lord like mm-hmm. he can heal us we are witnesses of that i you know i can't imagine him being like well yeah and mary had seven devils go out of her mm-hmm. <laughs> if it really was but just to say god can use everyone it doesn't matter mm-hmm. he wants to use us all as his ministers and so i just i have loved studying these women and especially with you and talking about them so thank you thanks for your time today and thank you this was fun i just want to ask you about this though cuz i did hear someone teach about mary magdalene and they supposed that her name also could be mary magadol meaning mary the great in hebrew or it can also mean tower like that name means tower which is so powerful when we go back to what you taught us earlier about her being the apostle to the apostles i mean that is such a cool connection like yeah, could yeah. be translated yeah and i i can see that it wouldn't be like a given name she would be from the time she was born i've i've heard it described that if you know when she is an adult as she is in these chapters um in this time period the fact that she's known as Mary of Magdala might indicate that she doesn't just stay in town, that people know her other places, that she's traveling around. And that's how they identify they her, her from oh. her, her hometown. So that would be independent of yeah. whether it, it, it definitely had grown to be a more important city during that um early part of the first century, you might be aware that they, not that many years ago, 10 years ago, 12, I don't, they uncovered the largest and most complete first century synagogue that they have found as far as I know, any place. And it, it underscores that Magdala was a larger city than, or a larger town than they had previously, um, believed because just of the size yeah of the synagogue so oh. something there's some growth happening there in a quick 
in a relatively short period of time. And it's right next to Tiberias, which is Herod Antipas's second capital there after Sephorus kind of goes downhill and is a major, you know, Roman city right next to it. So it would be an interesting juxtaposition. I got to get there someday. I'm going to make it to Magdala. I got to get there. Hey, what would you say to students who always ask this question? I know you've been asked it a million times, as have I. Were Mary and Jesus married? I I was waiting for that. And I didn't know you wanted to go there. I I think it might be worth asking because a lot of listeners were going to want to know, okay, but were they married? So what what was your answer for that? I'll tell you. Uh, I hear (laughs) always, so frequently, um, as recently as just last week, um, why would Mary Magdalene have been the one Jesus chooses to show himself to first one after his resurrection? Yeah. Um, the only explanation they will, this is the argument, is that she must have had a really close relationship like marriage. What do you think of that? And my answer is, do we really want to go there? Because if we think the only reason a woman could have such an incredible experience is because she is linked to an important man, we've just shot down everything we've been talking about in this hour and how much more. Um, Jesus teaches us from the get go is women did not have their importance was not derived by who um, having a man to represent them. I would say, why not Mary Magdalene? Everyone else who had come to the tomb and found it empty, including perhaps these women of Galilee who first saw it, go and tell the men, the men come back, they see the empty tomb, they run away. But then Mary Magdalene lingers. Right. She stops. And I can't help but think, because she's asking in many ways, trying to understand, she's asking the questions. And that gives her a perfect situation for him to come and answer. I just wonder if more of us could not receive greater spiritual um, insights and answers to our questions if we would be willing to linger. And rather than just stand up and run away after finishing a prayer and and give God a chance to answer us, Mary did that. And as a result, she's the recipient. Um, I don't think we need any other explanation for that. Definitely, I don't think we need to jump to any conclusions of someone, especially even, you know, that she's the Jesus's favorite person. Marriage or whatever. I, it's just not in there. I don't. Yeah, you don't need that. You don't need that. I wish you could see Camille's facial and body expressions. She's on fire about this because I completely agree. We have just limited her ability to be great based on a man. Like we just we just went back 70 years in time. I mean, come on. So thank you. Oh, that's a, you know what? I appreciate that. That was a fabulous answer to that question. And many people are going to have it. So we needed to ask it. Thank you. Thanks, friend. Oh, happy to help. Thanks. Well, that was a fabulous discussion. Oh my gosh, I learned so much about these certain women and the way we minister 
Gosh, I love Camille. That was a great discussion. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Unnamed Women of the New Testament. Unnamed Women of the New Testament is a special bonus series from the Sunday on Monday podcast, and it's brought to you by LDS Living and Deseret Bookshelf Plus. Our fabulous guest today was Camille Frank Olson, and you can find information about her actually if you just Google her name, and you're going to want to do that and find out all of the books she has. Go to DeseretBook.com, look up some incredible things that she has written, and just enjoy the price that she has paid. Our podcast is produced by Cole Wissinger and me. It is edited by Haley Hyam and recorded and mixed by Mix at Six Studios. And our executive producer is Aaron Hallstrom. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. And please remember, all you certain women, that you are God's favorite.